Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. There are only two kinds of people in this world. There are the wicked and there are the righteous. There are the, another way of saying it would be the ungodly and the godly. Those who hate God and rebel against God and love themselves and live to exalt themselves and glorify in themselves. And there are those who have put their trust and faith and hope in Jesus and live for him and for his glory. And much of the world, you know, belonged to the ungodly. Even in the society that we live in, much of it is an ungodly society, an ungodly culture. And sometimes when we see this culture prospering and wickedness and ungodliness prospering and even them succeeding in whatever they put their hands to, we wonder why. Our text this morning will give us some answers about this. In fact, the text that we are going to look at this morning from Genesis 4, is it's really a, a com- comparison or a contrast between these two groups of people, the ungodly and then the godly. And we have much to learn as, as we see how the ungodly progress and why God does that and and what is God's plan and purposes in that and we see some of the character of God in that and also uh, as as the world continues to live in the sin-cursed world how then the godly respond we have much to learn from from these pass from this passage about God and his nature and how we are to live in light of God's plans and his character. Just by way of reminder in terms of where we're at, God, the sovereign and supreme creator, he made the whole entire universe the heavens and the earth and everything that it contains in seven literal days. And then we saw that at the end of that week, God rests as he looks out at his creation and he sees everything according to his good plan and design and he says, it is very good. And all of creation then enters into that rest of God in that perfect design and uh, and the plan and purposes of God and everything is glorifying God and enjoying God. And then from Genesis chapter 2 verse 4 onwards where it starts off by saying, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. It goes on to explain then, then what happened to this very good world, this, all of this creation that 
had entered into the rest of God and were supposed to be in this state of perpetual rest of God, enjoying God forever and, and glorifying God forever. What happened to this world? And, and from Genesis 2, 4, all the way to the end of chapter 4, the author Moses explains to us in detail as to what happened. And we saw what happened, that sin came into this world. Satan, the, the epitome of evil, he took possession of a serpent, came into the garden, tempted Eve, and, and Adam and Eve fell as a result. And their very nature changed from having that innocent nature. They had a sin nature. And yet God was very gracious to them. And God said, this will not be forever. For I will bring about a transformation where you will hate the serpent, no longer listen to this serpent. There will be an enmity between you and the serpent. A transformation will take place where you will hate the serpent and you will love me again. And we saw that as, as it went past that Adam put his faith in the Lord as God himself has said he would bring about that transformation. And then we saw how Eve had put her trust in God as well and what he has said. And God also promised that even though now everything is tainted by sin, and as a result, the whole entire world is cursed, that God would send the promised offspring who would come and crush the head of the serpent and reverse everything that has now gone wrong. And we also saw that God was very gracious to drive out Adam and Eve from the garden so that they wouldn't eat from the fruit of the tree of life so that they wouldn't be locked in that state of sin forever, so that they would be exiled and they would live in this sin-cursed world and ultimately death would come to them and death would come to this whole entire world. Because you see, unless death comes, there cannot be a renewal of life, whether it's for themselves, for mankind himself, or for the rest of the world. And so God graciously then exiles them from the garden so they're barred from eating the tree of the fruit of life into this sin-cursed world. Then over the last few weeks we saw what happens to the next generation. How is it then from the next generation onwards, those who are born outside of the garden as they are born into this sin-cursed world, how do they relate to God? What is their nature? And we saw that their, their first two children, Cain and Abel, they too were born with a sin nature. And yet God made provision for them in how to approach God and how to relate to God. That they need to recognize their sin and therefore come with a blood sacrifice. And the evidence of that was shown in one of the sons, Abel, where he brought the, the first first flock, a blood sacrifice, showing that he gave the best to God, that God was the very focus of his life. 
And he acknowledged his sin, knowing that this is the only way he can approach God. But Cain, on the other hand, he was not transformed by God. No, he, he simply brought his best efforts to God, thinking that would make him right with God. But God rejected that offering. And so Cain then harbors bitterness and anger. And then God graciously comes to him saying, you would do well to turn away from your sin. Don't harden yourself in your sin because that's the path of ruin. And yet Cain does not listen to God. In fact, he's unable to, but just succumb to sin. And so he hardens his heart. He he stirs up and nurses that bitterness and that anger against God. And because he can't get God, it's directed against his brother. And he goes premeditated and he murders his brother. And then God approaches him, even with questions, giving him opportunities to turn. And yet, again and again, he rejects God. Then God condemns him and even curses him and tells him that he will no longer be able to farm. No matter where he goes, he will not be able to cultivate the fruit of the ground. Instead, he is to go from one place to another like a nomad, perhaps you know, picking up scraps and getting food from other people. And then Cain then is concerned that perhaps people will come and, and kill him because he has just murdered his own brother. And God again graciously puts a mark on him that protects him from everyone. And then at the end of it, we saw of how Cain then goes away from the presence of the Lord and still continues in his rebellion. He goes and settles in the land of wandering, almost telling God, God, you want me to wander? This is how much I will wander. This is the land of wandering. That's how much I will wander. But I will settle here. And now we see of what will happen to Cain and the line of Cain. Does God uh, obliterate things or does he allow him to prosper? What is it that God does? And if he does things, why does he do uh, the things that he does with Cain's line? And just by way of outline, as we look at verses 17 through to the end of the chapter of Genesis 4, I have three points even as this comparison is made between the ungodly line and the progression of it, and then finally the, uh, looking at the godly line. Three points. Firstly, we'll look at the establishment of Cain's ungodly line. That's in verse 17. Then we'll look at the advancement of Cain's ungodly culture in verses 18 through to 24. And then lastly, in verse 25 and 26, we'll look at the establishment of Seth's godly line. So let's look at the establishment of, godly, of Cain's ungodly line. Uh, and even as we look at it, let's understand God's plan and purposes and even his character. Verse 17. 
It reads, Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. Now, one of the things that you will see here in this verse is that this verse simply assumes that Cain was married at this time. It's quite likely that Cain was married before he murdered his brother Abel and before he, was, he went away from the Lord and settled in the land of Nod. It's quite likely that when he went away from the Lord and came and settled in the land of Nod, that he came with his wife, that he took his wife with him at this time. But the question still remains, where did Cain get his wife from? Now Genesis 4 does not tell us where he got his wife from, but we can look at some other passages and even just surrounding passages and even some passages in the New Testament to get some clues as to where Cain's wife came from. Now remember in Genesis 3.20, Eve was called the mother of all living, meaning that every other human being was going to come from her lineage. Uh, if you turn forward to Genesis 5 and you look at Genesis 5.4, it tells us that Adam and Eve had other sons and daughters as well. And then when you come to the New Testament, it confirms to us in 1 Corinthians 15.45 that Adam indeed was the first man. In fact, Acts 17.26 also tells us, further confirms to us that every other human being came from this first human being that is Adam. So here's the thing. If Adam is the first man and his wife Eve is the first woman and they're the first couple and everyone else came from there and Genesis 5 tells us that they had other sons and daughters, then it stands to reason that during this time if there were any other people on the planet, they were going to be children of Adam and Eve. So the natural conclusion would be that Cain got married to his sister. Now that might sound weird and bizarre, but think about it. If Adam and Eve, they were the first couple, only two human beings to start with on this earth, and everyone else came from them, then during the initial stages, the children would have to intermarry for human life to propagate because there's nobody else. There's no other family around other than the children of Adam and Eve. In fact, if you remember, uh, you know, later in the book of Genesis, even Abraham, he married his half-sister, Sarah. So in those early days, it was not wrong to marry close relatives. And, and think about it even you know, biologically or even genetically. You see, after the fall, as, as death and decay came in, with the passing of each generation, 
There was entropy. There were, there were defects at the genetic level. Genetic mutation would happen from one generation to another. So as time went on from one generation to another, these genetic defects became more and more pronounced. So much so that it would be a significant risk to marry close relatives. And so later in the Bible, by the time of Moses, marrying of close relatives would not be necessary because first of all, now there's lots of people. Yes, they're all related, but now they become distant, distant relatives. And then on top of that, marrying close relatives at this time would prove to be a significant risk because of the increasing gene mutation that would happen between close families. So God then forbids marriage between close relatives. And you see that in Leviticus 8, 11, and uh, even the next chapter of Leviticus. So Cain marries his sister. And in some sense, it would also indicate that she too walked away from the Lord. See, again, this is part of the, the, the curse working out. Remember, uh, God had told Eve that she would have much pain in childbearing and even the rearing of children. For her, one son is murdered now. Another son has walked away from the Lord. And now by implication, she's lost a daughter too. Cain's wife too has walked away from the Lord and has gone with Cain. Now some time has passed. God's gracious protection, that, that mark on Cain, continues to protect Cain and nobody has tried to kill him. And now the verse says, so Cain knew his wife. Meaning that there's intimacy in that marriage of his and there was even sexual intimacy and they had a child and he was called Enoch. Now verse 17 goes on to say, When he, that is Cain, built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. Now the term here for city, it's not what we would think uh, when we think of a city, like a, like a big city like Melbourne. Now this word here, it, it has more the idea of a permanent settlement. A, a complex of dwellings with, with walls around it. Really, the, the, the important thing about this word is not so much the, the, the size of the city. It could be big or small, but the, the emphasis of this word or the, the weight, the, the meaning of the word um, that it really carries, it, it is that it is a protected place. That it had a wall around it. So really this, this term could even be saying that, that there were just a few houses with, with a wall around it. This is the first city in human history. You know, and, and it's such a different picture, isn't it? 
compared to what the evolutionists try to portray of human beings being dumb and not able to speak and not being able to communicate and, you know, starting with ooga, ooga, ooga or whatever, and then living in caves and then discovering fire and then after millions of years, all these developments happening. Now, the Bible shows a very different picture. I mean, we saw previously as, as we looked at Adam and Eve that they would have been the, the most intelligent human beings, way more intelligent than us. Why? Because, they, b- because before the fall, they would not have had the effects of sin. They would be able to use their brain to the, the fullest capacity, that there would be no memory loss. and uh, So they would be so intelligent And here again we see Cain, not after millions of years, but just the first generation after Adam, building the very first city in human history. And this city was named after Cain's son, Enoch. And you know what Enoch means? Enoch really means to to dedicate or to inaugurate or to commence. This word is actually Hanok. And it's, it's where you get the Jewish festival Hanukkah from this word. So with Cain building a city and naming it after his son, Cain is essentially saying, I'm inaugurating or I'm commencing a new life and a new line of people. I'm commencing a new way of living apart from God. And this city is going to be all about that kind of living. A man-centered, godless city. Now think about this. God had cursed Cain and Cain was to wander the earth and to go from one place to another. But instead of wandering, Cain, in defiance, settles in the land of Nod. And in that land, again, defiantly, he builds a city. I mean, he still bears the mark of God, which is why he's protected from others. But either... He doesn't want the protection from God or he doesn't believe that God will protect him completely. Whatever the reason, he goes on to build a city, naming it after his son Enoch to say, I will protect my own life. I will build my own security. Now, I'm not going to trust God or his word or his mark of protection. I will trust my own efforts instead. He's saying, I will be Lord of my life and I will not live under God's rule. God will not tell me how to live my life. Only I will determine how I will live my life. And everyone from my family that I am going to build from now on will live this way. And what is this way? A man-centered life lived in rebellion against God. A life without any regard or need for God. 
See, despite the grace that God has shown to Cain, every step of the way, including letting Cain live and raise a family and having God's protection over him, Cain willfully continues to harden himself in his sin against God. And now he is resolved to establish a new line of people who are also going to live in active rebellion against God. It's almost like he's going to show God that he can live life without God by his own efforts. Now from the establishment of Cain's ungodly line, we move to the advancement of Cain's ungodly line, ungodly culture in verses 18 through to 24. Verse 18. It says, Now to Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mehujael, and Mehujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. You know, as you go through these names from one generation to another, we get a sense of what Cain's line is thinking about life and about God. To Enoch was born Irad. Now, Irad or Irad is closely related to the word a city, which in the original is Ir, Ir and Irad. So it's, it's almost like in that generation of Irad, the, the godless city was the very center of their life. That was their preoccupation. And then to Irad is born Mehujael. And Mehujael means smitten by God or, or blotted by God. So it's really seeing God against you. Seeing God as your enemy. And then it says to Mehujael was born Methushael. Uh, the meaning of Methushael is not as clear, although some people say it could mean man of the underworld or man of desire. So, so you can, in some sense, see the progression happening here. Beginning with Enoch, it was a start of a new life without God. And the focus of that life became the city, the city of man. Then their thinking about God was also not good. They simply see God as an enemy, a God who is totally against them. And possibly with the naming of Methushael, there's also an emphasis of now living life according to their own desires. There's a progressive movement of man-centeredness and moving away from God in their thinking. Now the next name in Cain's line is Lamech. And he plays a major role in Cain's genealogy. You see, Lamech is the, the seventh from Adam through Cain's line. And remember, number seven rep represents completion. And here, this is shown by the fact that Lamech is the, the, the epitome 
of Cain's corrupt line. So there's more detail about his life. And then from Lamech, Cain's family line then divides into three other male lines. Verse 19 says, Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other, Zillah. A few things to notice here. See, with Adam and Eve, it said that Adam knew his wife. Then even with Cain, despite his sinful bent and his excuse me, and the hardening of his heart. It said that Cain knew his wife. There's a relational intimacy there. But for Lamech, it simply says he took two wives. There's no relational intimacy here. He simply took them for himself. There's even a further hint that he took these two wives purely to fulfill his fleshly lust when we just look at the names of his two wives. Ada means ornament in the sense of being pretty. And Zillah is a word that's related to the sweetness of voice. In fact, even Lamech's daughter, Nema, that's mentioned later in verse 22, means gorgeous. So for Lamech, it's, it's all about external beauty. That's, that's it. So he takes these two wives, Ada and Zillah, because one looked good and the other sounded good to purely satisfy his lustful desires. He, he takes two wives. He's just focused on himself. So much so that Lamech defies and violates God's design for marriage. Remember, for as far as God was concerned, marriage was meant to be between one man and one woman, where the two shall become one flesh for the glory of God. We saw that in Genesis 2.24. And even in the New Testament, Jesus further picks up on this and reiterates it. That it's one man and one woman and the two shall become one. It is not three or four or five or six. Or it's not two males, it's not two females. But it's one man and one woman and the two shall become one flesh for the glory of God. Instead here we see Lamech violates God's design for marriage. It's the first case of Polygamy recorded in the Bible. And it's a marriage that wasn't for the glory of God, but it was, a, it was something to simply fulfill man's lust. Now verse 20 to 24 tells us about Lamech's children and their achievements. Verse 20. It says, Ada bore Jabal, and he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. Now remember, Abel was the keeper of the flocks. So general shepherding was there. Abel had already started that. 
But Jabal has made significant advances in this area in a much bigger way. He's really a nomadic herdsman, breeding animals, moving from place to place, looking for greener pastures and better land to even cultivate, and even trading these animals to help men in their labors as they use these domesticated animals. And he can do this, why? Because he's also uh, you know, invented these temporary dwellings called as tents. So he can live, just quickly pack up and leave and go to the next area and next area and trade and uh, breed and do all that kind of stuff. So Jabal is the father of it all, of farming and modern animal husbandry even. Verse 21 says, his brother's name was Jubal, and he was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Now Jubal, he invented the, the instruments that produce music. See, stringed instruments as well as wood instruments. He was really the first musician. If you love music, Jubal's the man you must thank. Because he's the one who was the first musician and made those instruments. And then verse 22 says, Zillah also bore Tubal Cain, and he was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. And the sister of Tubal Cain was Namah. Tubal Cain. Now, aside, the fact, aside from the fact that they rhyme, you know, Jubal, Jabal, Tubal, you, you see with Tubal, there, there's a, a name also attached to it Tubal Cain. Yes, Cain, the, the godless murderer. Now, now why, is, why does Tubal Cain, why is Cain's name attached here so many generations down? Well, the only reason would be because Cain in this society is held in very high regard. This great, 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 great grandfather is held in such high regard. So in honor of him, this great, 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 great grandson is named as Tubal Cain. And Tubal Cain was the man who heated metals like iron and bronze and melted it to make tools like farming tools and, and, and weapons and, and whatever else. Now you can see here that, the, that wicked men are making huge advances in the area of farming and animal husbandry and in the arts and, and metallurgy and technology, if you want to call it. Now if you think about it, you know, people before the flood lived for hundreds of years, 600, 700, 800, 900 years even. And so if if this entropy has not taken place as, as the curse is coming into effect and the defects are coming in, but before the flood they can live for long periods and, and their brain is a lot more active and they're more intelligent. You can imagine, uh, uh, you know, they're so inventive. 
And they have so many years of trial and error and somebody becoming an expert. And imagine for years and years they're perfecting their art, how much of experience they would have, and that they would then teach it to the next generation. But you say, but, but they're wicked men, godless men. You know, why is it that they can do it? Well, because they too are made in the image of God. So they too are able to observe things around and, and create and invent, just like their creator. And what you see with the sons of Lamech is human ingenuity where all their efforts are focused on having a better life in this sin-cursed world. They're using all their efforts, all their creativity to, to make advances. And yes, all these advances are a huge blessing to society. And they're a testimony of God's goodness. And even now we experience so much of this even in this day and age as even godless people make such advances in society. But there's a problem here in the advancement of this culture. And it's not the fact that there is something wrong with human ingenuity and wanting to live a better life in this sin-cursed world. But it's the fact that they didn't use their genius skills to acknowledge God and glorify God with their skills. See, see, that's why God has given each man gifts and skills. But what you see here is that all their efforts were directed toward living a more comfortable life for themselves in this sin-cursed world apart from God. In rebellion against God. And really, that's what every secular society is. Even in this day and age, including our society, it's not different. A godless society, a secular society, where their hope is all in the human achievements and the advancements that they make instead of putting their hope in God and honoring God. Now verse 23 and 24. After the mention of the achievements of Lamech's sons, we come back to Lamech. Because again, to, to highlight and summarize the fact that with all the advances of this godless culture, of this secular culture, when you walk away from God generation after generation, your heart becomes even more hardened in sin. And so here Lamech is the epitome of that and he sings a poem boasting about the kind of person that he is. Showing how godless he is and how hardened in sin he is. Look at verse 23 and 24. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Scylla, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I have to say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. 
I mean, what a huge contrast, isn't it, to the first poetry we saw before the fall from Adam's mouth when he first saw his wife to seeing Lamech. You see, when Adam first saw his wife, he burst out into song, honoring his wife and, and essentially thanking God and accepting the woman that God had brought to him as he kept saying, this one is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. But here Lamech, the godless person, is using poetry, perhaps even using music from what his son made, perhaps, not to thank and exalt God, but to exalt himself and celebrate evil. And even the fact that Lamech is calling his two wives in the context of celebrating violence, it may be hinting at the fact that you, you, know, you know, this is the, the, the extreme of the curse where God said, the, the man shall rule over his wife. The man shall domineer over his wife. It may be hinting at the fact that he was a domineering husband, where these wives were subject to his great power, power and violence. And to, to these who is really you know, under his subjection, he's boasting to them about what he's done. I have killed a man, a young man for wounding me, for striking me. You know, you know these words wounding and, and striking, they're really references to, to, to minor cuts and bruising. They're not talking about fatal blows or anything like that. And he's boasting about the fact that he, he killed a young man, perhaps a young warrior, a young healthy person who's come against him and he's saying for bruising me or scratching me or whatever, I have killed him and he's boasting about it. And then he adds if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. What he's saying is, see, because he thinks he is so great that even his vengeance will be significantly greater than Cain's. Sure, Cain's might be uh, sevenfold, but for him it's 77-fold. And that's why if somebody tries to harm him or cross his path or even perhaps even just irritate him, that person would be killed. Nobody messes with me, he's saying, because I'm so powerful, I'm so great. And he's, he's celebrating his violence, celebrating wickedness and evil. Celebrating what he has done with his bare hands and perhaps even you know, killing the, the young man with some of the weapons that his you know, Tubal Cain had made. What you see here in this section is the perversion of the sinful human heart. This, this whole section really up to what we've done now. You see, having gone away from the presence of the Lord, man builds a city that is governed by sin and centered on glorifying man. 
And with the progressive culture, man without God becomes the sole determiner of what is right and wrong. Marriage is redefined for purely lustful reasons. And man even becomes the ultimate authority with regards to how he views life of others. And even that progression there, you know, from trying to cover up the murder of one's brother, that was the case with Cain, now man glories and celebrates in killing a young man. This is a secular society, a godless society. A society that might progress on the outside and may bring about lots of advancements technologically and otherwise. But a society that is hardened in sin. And it's not very different from our, our culture, even where we live, isn't it? with the number of abortions and even laws to protect the, the young babies, and where people even celebrate the fact, where there's redefinition of the God-ordained marriage and even celebration of unnatural unions. I mean, this is, this is the plight of society. This, this is the plight of a culture without God. And what we must understand as believers is that God does indeed allow the wicked to prosper in this world. And this is a fact. It is God's common grace to man that even the godless and the unjust people, God chose his common grace and that they are allowed to prosper. Matthew 5, 45 says, For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the, and on the unjust. Then again in Acts 14, 17 it says, and he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. He does that for the godly as well as the ungodly. And so we must understand why the wicked and the godly prosper in this world. And it is this, it is only because of God's common grace toward them. But here's the thing. Despite all the prosperity and the advancements that man can make in society, which is God's common grace to them, man cannot overcome his sinful nature. He cannot redeem himself. In fact, the more man moves away from God, the more openly he will begin to manifest his arrogance and his sin. So this is the line of Cain. 
And remember, it's the line of the ungodly. It's the line of the serpent. And it looks like Satan's line is, is propagating and, and advancing. And people are becoming more and more godless and more and more wicked as a result. I mean, Abel, who was a godly man, was murdered, as we saw last week. And it looks like Satan is winning and he's eliminated that godly line. But now, a glimmer of hope shines through. Through the godly line of Seth. And here we come to our last point. The establishment of Seth's godly line. Look at verse 25. says that, and Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. See, God had not forgotten to bring about, God had not forgotten his promise to bring about the serpent crusher through the godly line. And God is simply working out his plan according to his timeline. Adam and Eve, within the intimacy of the marriage relationship, there's sexual intimacy again, and Eve bears a son. And she calls him Seth. And Seth means appointed one. And think about this. See, first when Cain was born, she thought Cain was literally the man that he was the Lord's representative who would crush the serpent. Then by process of elimination, Cain turned out to be a murderer and the one who went away from the Lord. And his line continues in sinful rebellion. So Cain wasn't the man. And Abel, who was indeed godly, was murdered. So the godly line seemed to have been eliminated, but now Eve expresses her faith and hope in God again, saying, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. God has given another offspring. See, that, that's a connection to the, the promise of Genesis 3.15, of the promised offspring. See, despite all the misery that she has endured with the murder of Abel, the, the you know, losing of her firstborn son, Cain, and even her daughter, and now even the propagation of sin and rebellion against God through Cain's line, she still has hope and faith in God that he will bring to pass what he has promised. Because Eve now believes that it is through Seth, it is through his line that God's promised offspring is going to come. Hope is restored. Verse 26 says, To Seth also a son was born, and he was called Enosh. So Seth grew up and he 
and his son was called Enosh. And Enosh is a, is a word for man, but man in his weakness, or man in his frailty, or man as it relates to his finitude and mortality. And in a sense, you know, Seth too is expressing his faith by naming Enosh. Because he's recognizing the fact that man is weak and frail. He's recognizing the corruption of sin. And that there might even be a sense in which, you know, there's a recognition that God's promised offspring, the serpent crusher himself, is going to take some time to come. Might be through this line, but it's going to take some time. So Seth is also recognizing the frailty of man and, and the, the, the corruption of sin of man. And so the last part of verse 26, and I love this, it reads, at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. This is a huge contrast between the line of Cain and the line of Seth. You see, the ungodly line of Cain, they they understood they needed to be secure and they needed protection and they needed help to live in this sin-cursed world. But instead of turning to God for their hope and security, they turned to their own efforts and put all their hope in their ability and their skills. Now the godly line of Seth, on the other hand, they recognize their need and their frailty and the corruption of sin that is within them. And what do they do? They put their hope in God instead of themselves. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. See, this term to call upon the name of the Lord is found throughout the Old Testament. And really, it's a reference to prayer. And, and the name of the Lord, it's related to the, the character or, or the nature of the Lord. And so the godly line here, they, they know the Lord and His character. And they're expressing their faith and hope in the Lord. And and they're calling on the Lord. They're they're praying to Him and and proclaiming and, and, and turning to God and saying, God, act according to your character. They're calling on the Lord to fulfill what He has promised. And at this time, you know, these people, they, they didn't have the Bible. They didn't have the New Testament, let alone the Old Testament. They didn't even have, uh, you know, small sections of it. You know what they had? The, the, the only thing that they had was the promise of God given in Genesis 3.15 that, uh, that Adam and Eve then told everyone about that God would send an offspring through the godly line of the woman to crush the head of the serpent 
which is nothing but the gospel of Jesus Christ in its very basic state. See, the reason that they call on the name of the Lord is because these people, they see God rightly and they see themselves rightly. They have been transformed by God. They see how good God is. They see their frailty and the corruption of sin in them. They realize their own helplessness and that they cannot do anything to change it. And so they turn to God and and they pray, God, let your will be done. That God's purposes would come to pass. Essentially, what they're calling on the Lord is for the gospel to be realized, that it would come to pass. You see, they recognize that God's plan and purposes is for their good and ultimately for God's glory. See, this is the first recorded prayer in the Bible. And so even that is significant because it gives us a fundamental idea of what prayer is and what's involved in prayer. See, fundamentally, according to this, prayer is calling on God to act according to his character and his will and his promises. And at the very core of it is that the gospel would be realized. You know, now, being on this side of the cross, you know, as believers, we recognize that, yes, this this promised seed, uh, this promised offspring, Jesus, he's already come. And he died on the cross for vile sinners like us to pay the price for our sin. And that he rose on the third day, defeating sin and death and Satan. This happened 2,000 years ago. We, We believe that as as his children. But in a full sense, God's salvation plan or the gospel is to be fully realized where the curse will be removed and sin will be no more and Satan in an ultimate sense will be put away and everything will be made new and God's people will be with him. So what can we do as believers even as we see the godly line of Seth here what can we do as believers as we live in this sin cursed world well come before God regularly in prayer showing our our dependence on him confess sin before him seeking forgiveness at the foot of the cross and, and, and turning away from that sin as a result. And, and even pray for the gospel to go out and that more people would come to know the Lord Jesus. That more people would come to know this great and good God. And even when we hear about the wicked prospering, We need to recognize that the common grace and only because of the common grace of God 
that the just and the unjust that he shows common grace to. That is the only reason why the, the wicked also prosper. And we can rest in that fact. So when we hear things like the Taliban taking over Afghanistan and, and torturing children and women and, and uh, torturing Christians and even killing them, we can pray that his people would stand firm in the hope of who God is. That he is in control and will do what is good and just. And that the gospel would continue to go out even in that place, even for those who belong to the Taliban. That God's good purposes would come to pass and even beyond that, that we wait in hope for the return of our Lord Jesus Christ when he will make things right again and every injustice will be dealt with. I wonder if there's anyone listening to this, this today who has not put their trust in Jesus. Now you might not be thinking that you are living in act of rebellion against God. But if you are simply living for yourself and not for God and his glory, then can I tell you, friend, you are living in rebellion against God because God made you to glorify him and to not do that. The only other option is to live for your glory. Your life might be going well for you right now, but that doesn't mean that God will overlook your sin or rebellion. It simply means that God is showing his common grace to you. God is good. And therefore he is also just. And that means he must punish sin. And if you continue to live your life to for yourself, to glorify your own self, you will be condemned by God into an eternal lake of fire and God will get the glory for showing his justice toward you. But God is also gracious and merciful and loving. And because of that, there is still hope for you today to turn to God in Jesus Christ. Today is the day to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and to turn away from yourself and from your sin. If you want to know more about Jesus Christ and what it means to follow him, please email us at connect at gracebiblechurch.org.au and we would love to talk to you about Jesus and what it means to follow him. But for those of us who are believers, let us continue to live each day in dependence on God, knowing we, we are not it. No, we're frail. We're mortal. And that we would live each day, not for our own glory, but to make much of Jesus, 
to seek God's glory and, and to seek opportunities to tell others about Jesus. And that, even, that we would even regularly come to him in prayer, calling on him to act according to his purposes and putting our hope in our Lord Jesus Christ and eagerly waiting for his return and for his plan of salvation to be fulfilled. That should be our goal as we live each day in this sin-cursed world and even as we see wickedness prosper around us. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the great God you are. We thank you for your word that teaches us who you are, that tells us why the world is the way it is. It teaches us how we must respond to you. It teaches us how we can glorify you. And beyond that, through your Holy Spirit, your word works in our lives to transform us, to do your bidding. For this we are thankful, Lord, May we each day live for your glory and eagerly wait for Jesus to return. And in the meantime, continue to live faithfully for you. We pray all these things in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.